0: This week, we're straddling a chapter. We're in 6 and 7, chapter 6, and then the first 13 verses of chapter 7. The title, if you're taking notes, I do want to give a commendation to Jerry Schoon in our church who uh, inspired me for the title this week, When Circumstances Seem Big and God Seems Small. When Circumstances Seem Big and God Seems Small. Why don't we pray and then we'll get started. Father, we come before you uh, this morning and we're thankful to be able to gather together as your people and to worship you and to have our perspective uh, shifted and focused more clearly. Um, We know how often our spiritual lenses uh, can get dirty, fogged up, out of perspective. And so, God, we come here every week to have our faith made clear through your word and the power of your spirit and the encouragement of your people. And so, God, I pray that today we would walk out seeing you more clearly, ourselves more clearly, in light of you and your truth and your plan and purposes for our lives over and against the lies of this world and the lies that our flesh often want to say to us. And so, God, I pray that This morning, those things would happen to your glory and our good, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When circumstances seem big and God seems small, there's a style of photography if you are into that sort of thing, or maybe you think you're a professional Instagrammer or something and you post these photos, but there's a style, very popular on social media actually, known as forced perspective, and forced perspective uses distance to sort of create an illusion to reality. Uh, For example, what what you would do in forced perspective is you would take the subject and the object of the photo and make one seem larger or smaller than what it really is, while making the other one seem larger or smaller than what it really is. Here's a couple examples that are gonna go on the screen. For example, it looks like this person is holding the Eiffel Tower. Now, we know that that is not actually happening, but because of the use of distance, near and far, it looks this certain way. It's an illusion to the reality. This next picture, somebody's holding a cloud in their hand, which we obviously know is not happening. This is the obligatory Instagram photo. If you go to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, then you have to hold it up and then take a picture of it like you're holding the tower up because it's falling over. Or it can be used in film. Uh, It was one of the tools used in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Last service, I said it was Bilbo Baggins. It is Frodo Baggins. Thank you for the correction, Josh Hunsaker, (laughs) Frodo Baggins. And, of course, Gandalf there. The distance makes it look like Frodo is much smaller than he really is, and Gandalf larger than he really is. And I bring this up as an illustration here at the beginning to help you understand that photographers use this tool as an art form of illusion to reality. But this same tool, or a similar tool, I guess you could say, as an illustration, the enemy uses as a tool of disillusion in our Christian life. Similar to forced perspective in photography, the enemy also wants to shift your perspective and warp your viewpoint so that you live in a world like that, only spiritually speaking, where your circumstances seem big and God seems really small. But because, like those photos, for example, because we're familiar with those objects, We know something is not right, and so we can appreciate the creativity of the art form, but we aren't actually deceived in thinking that someone is holding up the Eiffel Tower. We're not tricked, and therefore we appreciate it. However, that is not as easy in the Christian life, because by very nature, the Christian life is a life of faith, and a life of faith are seeing things that are unseen, For example, in Hebrews 11, uh, it describes faith this way, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I'm confident of this, though I have not yet experienced this. And then he says, the conviction, the belief in things not seen. That's what faith is. Faith is seeing beyond your circumstances to what God in His Word says, this is truth. This is reality. You are seeing this, but behind all of that is a bigger picture and a clearer picture, a more realistic picture, though we may only see what's right in front of us. And that can distort our views. And all of this is really hard because we are often falling into our flesh We don't walk in the spiritual all the time. Oftentimes we fall into our natural inclinations and we respond to what we see, not what we believe in. And the enemy knows this. And in those moments of weakness, in those moments of our flesh, in those moments where we're leaning more into our natural inclination, what he does is he tries to convince us that God is small and our circumstances are too big. And when he does this, he can control our lives and keep us in bondage to Him. We have seen this happen in Exodus. In chapter 4, the people at the end, remember they were in this really difficult situation, they cried out to God, God heard, He sent Moses and Aaron, he, they preached to them, God is going to deliver you. It says they believed and they worshiped the Lord. Great high moment. Uh, they had an assurance of things hoped for. God, that you just said, is going to deliver us. But they had not seen it yet, yet they believed, and so they had joy. But then in chapter 5, the enemy comes in and forces their perspective. Before God was big and their circumstances became small, now it became the other way around. God made, or the enemy made their circumstances very big and made God seem very small. And by the end of chapter 5, they are blaming Moses for the things that have happened to them. And then Moses goes off and blames God for what has happened to them. God's people were in a crisis of faith at the end of chapter 5. And though we could never possibly understand exactly what they were going through in that moment, we can relate, we can sympathize to a certain degree because we all know what it's like to go through seasons or experiences, to have circumstances where they seem bigger, And larger than God. And what this chapter is going to teach us is how we should move from a forced perspective, a distorted reality, what the enemy wants us to see, and move to a biblical perspective, where we see things as they truly are, as God communicates they are, where the unseen becomes visible and the visible things become unbelievable. We don't see them as the enemy wants us to see them. If I could summarize the big idea. into a simple statement, it would be this, that when we are experiencing a crisis of faith, what we need is three things. We need to see God for who He really is, ourselves for who we really are, and our enemies for what they really are. We need to see God for who He is, us for who we really are, and our enemies for what they really are. So, those three answers actually are going to frame. The topic and the text that we're going to look at today, Uh, we're going to start with the first one, the most important one, seeing God for who He is. It was A.W. Tozer who famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so that's why we're going to discuss this, the first one, really, because it's the first one that comes up in the passage. We're going to see God's initial response to Moses when He blames God for the evil that fell on on His people, this accusation of Him at the end of chapter 5. So, let's go ahead and read uh, first 13 verses of chapter 6. And as we read, I want you to pay attention to what God reminds Moses of, His name, is concerned for His people, and then the repeated I wills that come after that. So, let's read together. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what... I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Which is to say he's tongue-tied. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land. We'll stop right there. Some people, as maybe some of you are, I know I used to be, maybe probably to some degree still am, uh, sometimes people have to learn the hard way things in life. You can warn them all day long. You can show pictures. You can tell stories. You can say all of the words, and they'll listen to you, but at the end of the day, they have to learn it for themselves. They have to experience it before they know it, and they do it anyway. And in verse 1, this is what God says to Moses. Hey, we told Moses, this is what we're going to do. This is what you need to do. Let my people go. If you don't, we're going to do this to you and to everyone in the land. We gave Pharaoh a shot. We told him. We warned him. But he didn't let my people go. I guess he wants to learn this the hard way, that he's going to let my people go. And from there, God does something really amazing for Moses, and by extension for the people of Israel, is that he shifts the subject of the perspective, Previously, they saw God as small, their circumstances as big, but now he's wanting to flip that. He wants them to see him for who he really is, larger, bigger than their horrible circumstances. And as he had done before, he starts by declaring his name to Moses. Uh, Moses, I'm the Lord, not Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh is not God. He may show or try to demonstrate power over you now. Um, But in fact, if you look at verse 1 again, what God is essentially saying is, uh, Pharaoh works for me. He's going to do what I tell him to do. He is going to let my people out. Now he's going to lead or need a little coaxing. He's going to need a forceful hand in order to do it. But Pharaoh is deceived. He works for me. He does my bidding. I am the Lord. But then he also says, in the past, he had revealed himself to the patriarchs by another name. El Shaddai in the Hebrew means, translates, God Almighty. But now God is saying, I, I've revealed myself to you and I'm revealing myself to my people now under this new name, this name Yahweh that He earlier revealed in the burning bush as the god who is holy the god who is a consuming fire the god who purifies his people separating them from the world and worldliness and judges those who do evil this is a new version or i guess a broader revelation of the god that they already knew and and i guess maybe let me clarify that this is not a new god God was revealing Himself this way, now that's over and now He's a new kind of God. It, it's more like when you've known someone for a long time, 20 years, and you're like, whoa, I, you find out something new about them. I didn't know that about you or, or your past. For example, today my wife and I are celebrating 12 years of marriage. Now I know to some of you, thank you, thank you very much. I know to some of you that's not a very long time. To us, it's, it's a long time. But it also has gone by really fast. Uh, But at the same time, I am amazed how even just this last week we were having a conversation and she was talking about something a few years ago uh, before we were married. And I, I had never heard that before. I didn't know that about her, that she had experienced that. And This is common in marriages and in relationships where you continue to learn things about them even as you've known them for a long time. And this is what God is saying. In the past, you knew this much about me, but now I'm going to reveal more about myself, more about my plan for my people. And the highlight is this. I am the God who delivers my people. I am the God who brings salvation. I am the God above all other gods, and in fact, there is no other God, and I'm going to prove that. I am the Lord and no one else. So, in verses 2 through 5, God reveals to Moses who He is, what He has promised to His people. He needs that for that perspective to move from forced to biblical. And then from here in verses 6 through 8, God then tells Moses not only who he is, but now what he's going to do through these seven I will declarations. Now, you know seven is the number of wholeness, of completeness, of perfection. It is to say this is going to happen. And he gives these seven I will declarations. Look at them again with me. I'll just list them off real fast. He says, I will bring you out from your burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you, which is to purchase back. I will redeem you through the judgment of Egypt. They're going to pay the price for what they've done. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. Seven I will promises. And then notice at the end, he seals all of those I will promises with this insignia insignia at the end. I am the Lord, which is to say this, if I can't do all of this stuff, then I'm not the Lord. But because I am the Lord, I'm going to do all of this stuff. So for the sake of time, I just want to make two comments on these seven I will statements and what they're teaching us. First, and probably the most obvious is that salvation is by God's hand alone. In the context of Exodus, these I wills are a reminder that Moses and Aaron, they were not the savior. God was using them, but they were not the savior. God was going to deliver his people out of Egypt. God was going to bring his people into the land. God was going to enter into a relationship with them and they with him. He would do it. He would get the credit. He will get the glory. Why? Well, because he was the one doing it, not anyone else. No one could do this in their own power. Remember, Moses tried and failed horribly which reminds us that we can't save ourselves. We can't, through religious practice, morality, we can't try hard enough and then get to God and say, hey, look at all the good things I've done. Can't you let me into your heaven? It doesn't work that way. We can't save ourselves. We also, by extension, can't save anyone else. When we share the gospel with someone, it isn't us doing the saving. They're not saved because we gave them the right answer, or they're not saved because we debated better than them. We, they aren't saved because we were wittier than them. It's none of that stuff. They are saved through God's Holy Spirit and His gospel working in them alone. He will do it. He alone gets the glory and the credit. Second, salvation is multifaceted. One of the problems, I think, in the American church is that we often think of salvation as, great, now I get to go to heaven. Just one facet of salvation. Great, I am not going there. Instead, I'm going there. And that is the last of the I wills, right? I will give you the land. I will give you heaven. But what about all the other things? Salvation is multifaceted. Salvation is starting with removal of guilt and shame. It is removing or delivering us from slavery under the power and the dominion of sin that reigns in these mortal bodies. This is what Paul talks about in Romans. Salvation is redemption, purchasing us back from the judgment that is coming upon sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price. The wages of sin is death. He paid that price for us on the cross. God redeemed his people through Jesus Continuing on in these I wills, salvation is entering into a relationship with God where He knows us personally and we know Him personally. Another thing that I think we as Christians fail to recognize is that salvation is about union with God, us being with Him and being united to Christ, being in Christ. And that's what he's saying here. I didn't just forgive you of your sin, but I'm bringing you into a relationship with me where you and I, where we can know one another personally. The good news of the gospel is that we can know God as He knows us. Furthermore, salvation, God brings us into that eternal land of promise and gives us an inheritance of His grace. These promises, they're all found in the gospel, that we should all know as Christian believers, remind ourselves of every single day. And they're told here to Moses, go and remind them of the gospel, of the things that I will do for them. Remind them in their hopeless situation. And he goes, verse 9, and he tells them. And what does it say? Moses goes to the people, only this time, unlike chapter 4, This time, they don't listen to Moses, and it says why, because of their harsh circumstances. And it would be like this. Today, right, you go up to somebody, and you ask them if they're a Christian, or if they've ever gone to church, or these kinds of things, and they say something like this, I tried that whole Jesus thing, and it didn't work for me. I tried that whole Jesus thing when my marriage was falling apart, and, uh, well, He didn't fix my marriage. And so, uh, it didn't work for me. Um, I tried that whole Jesus thing when, like, my work was really hard, and He didn't fix it, and I got fired. That Jesus thing didn't work for me. I tried that Jesus thing when I was going through that health crisis, and it didn't work out for me. And so, you know, I tried it. It didn't work for me. And of course, you see the pattern in all those things. Who's God here? Who's the one that's bending to whoever's will? But I tried that whole Jesus thing, and it didn't work out for me. Oh, so what what are you doing now? I I do meditation, (laughs) yoga, I'm a vegan now, I don't know, whatever, not that being a vegan is bad, Uh, I'm a minimalist, I don't know, whatever they do to sort of replace that, I tried that whole Jesus thing, so now I'm trying this thing out. To them, God, in their circumstances, was very small, and their circumstances were too big, and He didn't fix it, therefore, He wasn't real And so the same thing is happening here. You know what, Moses? We tried that whole Jesus thing and uh, it didn't work out for us. So we're just going to keep doing this. This is our lot in life. But, friends, here is one of the most amazing things we need to remember about God and His grace is that His grace presses even beyond our moments of unbelief. And we're going to see that. So, again, this first point, the most important thing that we need to adjust that forced perspective to a biblical perspective in those moments of a crisis of faith is we need to see God for who He really is, bigger than our circumstances. A God who is far greater than any person or circumstance we may encounter. A God who has made promises, sealed those promises to the highest authority, right? We we make an oath To an authority higher than us, God made an oath to an authority that, well, the highest one, Himself. I am the Lord. I will do these things. By my very name, I'm staking it on my promises. But there's two more things if we're going to overcome moments of crisis. The second thing we need to remember is not only who God is, but who we really are. And we we move next to this genealogy in the text. If you want to look down at your Bible in your lap there. And I'm gonna admit, we need to move faster here because I can spend two hours on this. And I'm not gonna read all of those names in the genealogy for my own sake, your sake, and embarrassment. So I'm not gonna read all the names. Uh, But you can read them yourself later on. But this is a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And and I do wanna emphasize that this genealogy sort of comes out of nowhere, right? We're in this story And then there's an interruption to the story, and it's this parenthetical insertion of a genealogy, and that is done for a purpose. And there are three important reasons for that. There are more, but I think for sure these at least are the most important. First, it shows Moses and Aaron as coming from the line of Levi, placing them then in the Levitical priesthood. The genealogy follows, if you look at it there, the order of the three sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, and then Levi. So the emphasis is on the last one. It's focusing on the descendants of Levi, and this is important because in the future, When they're out of Egypt and they're moving into the wilderness, God will establish the Levitical priesthood, and then He will establish their corporate worship prescribed by Him, and they are a significant part of that. And so, He is saying Moses and Aaron are a part of this very important Levitical priesthood that will come in the future. Second, it is showing that these men really existed in history. A lot of people who are critical of the scriptures will read a story like this and say, these men did not really exist. This is some cultural fable, some story that teaches moral platitudes to a group of people so that they can stay in line with one another or something like that. These are just folklore, fairy tale stories. But instead, what this genealogy is teaching us is this. These were real real people who had descended from real people, and they had descendants that came from them. In fact, the readers, the first readers of the book of Exodus, would have been direct descendants of Moses and Aaron. These were real historical people who acted in real history. And though what they did, and what we're going to see here later on, this week and even next is miraculous in nature hard to believe what this genealogy is saying is these were real men who did really miraculous things and those things were real just like these men were real in history so we can believe the things that happened here and what are spoken about them and what god did through them so that's secondly what this genealogy is saying Third, and perhaps most notably, it is showing that God uses, I'll put it this way, fabulously flawed people in His kingdom work. If you're a Bible student, maybe you look down at these names and you look and see, huh, I've seen these names before, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Aren't those the guys Reuben slept with his father's concubine? He was kind of a weird guy. Simeon and Levi, aren't those the the guys that committed genocide and killed an entire group of people? Nadab and Abihu, aren't those the people who will eventually offer this evil form of worship on the altar and God will kill them over it? Uh, These are pretty sketchy individuals. These were not comic book heroes. These were real people, sinful and messed up, and yet called and loved and used by God in fascinating ways. These men, Moses and Aaron, belong to that group. And theoretically speaking, so do all of us in this room. When God calls people into a relationship with Him, uses them, He calls fabulously flawed people. And when it comes to shifting that perspective, the object and the subject of our worldview that's inflated or deflated in our minds, what we need to see is ourselves more clearly. For some, they have too high a view of themselves. Well, of course God would love someone like me. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm a perfect human specimen. Why would He not love someone like me? They are entitled, they're arrogant, they're prideful. And because, or they're like the Pharisees, Well, I am a descendant of this person. I belong to this family, this tribe. Of course, God's going to accept someone like me. They struggle because of that to see their need of grace, and therefore they fall short. And yet they're blinded by their own pride. Meanwhile, others are so down on themselves, so run down by the effects of sin, that they can't imagine a God who could possibly love a wretched sinner like them. And what they need to see is the availability of grace even for them. So we need to see ourselves more clearly. But there's one more thing we need to have happen if we're going to overcome that crisis of faith. We need to see our enemies for who they really are, which is this. They are powerful, but they are posers. They are a cheap imitation of the real thing. Let's pick up and read in chapter 7, the first 13 verses. (coughs) And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them Moses and Aaron did so they did just as the Lord commanded them now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh verse 8 then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron when Pharaoh says to you prove yourselves by working a miracle But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Well, like I said earlier, we're stopping right before the main ten, I guess, famous plagues that hit Egypt. But maybe we shouldn't think about them as plagues, because not all of them are actually plagues. What does God say they are? They're signs and wonders. Supernatural actions that are meant to communicate a very clear message. In fact, in the book of Acts, the apostles, it says, they went out preaching the gospel, preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, and doing signs and wonders. And the people believed. And here we see Moses and Aaron getting ready to do the same thing signs and wonders. But even before those 10 major acts, there's an introductory act here involving Aaron's staff, and it becomes A serpent. And in response, we read the magicians of Egypt are able to replicate, to repeat the same miracle, which is really amazing to think about. We'll get into that in a moment. Let me pause on that. Let me say a few things about the first seven verses, though, because there's a few things happening there. For starters, it's important to remember this that this was not merely a political coup. Uh, This was not two groups battling it out together in politics. This was a spiritual battle. This was a war of the gods, whose God was real and who was to be worshiped and served. And maybe to some degree, all conflicts are really just spiritual battles. Who is going to be on the throne of our hearts? All political power struggles on some level are a spiritual matchup. Only here, it's just more apparent to us. And what we see stated in the beginning is that God reverses the role. Remember, Moses was in Egypt and Pharaoh was like God to him. But now God comes in and says, it's going to be the other way around now. That poser is now going to look to you like God. Now, he doesn't right away, but he eventually will. Moses will be like God to Pharaoh. The poser is being replaced with the real thing. And from here, we also read something we've seen before. We haven't discussed it yet. And in fact, I'm only going to make a comment this week because we'll get more into it next week, which is where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Or He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart in verse 3. In verse 13, however, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart toward God. So, what is it? The chicken or the egg? Uh, is it God doing it? Is it Pharaoh hardening his own heart? And this is one of those moments where we need to hold both of these truths in our hands and say, yes, both of these things are true at the same time. Again, we will get into that more next week because it's repeated over and over again when we talk about the plagues that hit Egypt. Uh, But there is something we need to answer here, which is this, why did God do this to Pharaoh? And he tells us the reason there in verse 5, so that all (coughs) the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. God was going to do this. God was going to use Pharaoh as an example of his power over and against every other power in the world, all earthly forces that seek to challenge him and seek to threaten his people. He is going to say, I am the Lord, and that guy is not, and I'm going to use him as an example to prove that to be true by delivering his people and judging the opposition, And I think it's important to keep in mind that whatever God does for His people, whatever God does for you, He does it for you. When He shows you grace, you mercy, He does that for you. But He also does it for all of those around you so that they can see what a a transformed and converted life actually looks like. So as He's delivering these people, He's saying, I'm going to do this so that the Egyptians know that I am the Lord And and we're about to see that there's a lot of cheap imitations out there that want to lure you in and believe that. And God is saying, I want to, by your life, show the world that all of that is fake. All of that is fleeting. But this is the real thing. And, And unfortunately, there are too many Christians today not living distinct enough lives where the world can look in and say, you know what, that person has something that I don't have. And in fact, isn't that exactly what happens in the miracle? He repeats or he, they do this miracle and, and yet Pharaoh comes in and says, I can do that. My people can do that. And I think a lot of Christians live their lives this way where maybe their faith is sort of held under the radar, under the surface. Uh, they may live a little bit different. Maybe they think, oh, you're just a good person, but they don't live in a truly distinct way where the world says, you know what? You have something that I don't. I was on a, I flew to California this last week uh, for a couple of days to go see some friends and, and one of my heroes in the faith, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he's my favorite preacher in the world and I got to go see him, which was awesome. But on the way, the Lord had a conversation for me, with me or for me uh, on the plane with some individual and what was amazing about this conversation with this guy was he could not believe he had no category for a, a world in which a person actually believed the Bible. And, and I told him that I went to this school and I studied theology, and he turns to me and says, you actually believe that? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. And he's like, oh, so you really believe that? <laughs> And it was a crazy conversation. Um, I won't get into the details of the conversation. You can imagine it, it was pretty weird. But by the end, what was really sad was he was shocked, amazed uh, by my lifestyle choices, my, my beliefs that influenced my behavior. Um, by the end though, he was confessing to me that his ba- basically his life is falling apart. And I'm like, and yet I am the weirdo who, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, he couldn't comprehend that his beliefs were leading him to a train wreck and and I'm, I'm not judging this person at all. I'm saying, if I, if by the grace of God, I'd be on that same road for sure. It was just interesting hearing him looking at my life and there was nothing about it and yet he couldn't see that his life was falling apart. And that's where I'm going back to this, you, the, the arrogance, the pride to say, I don't need that grace. I can figure it out all on my own. So going back though, to this curious interaction with Aaron and the Egyptian sorcerers who all turned their staffs into serpents, which is amazing to think about, that not only Aaron is able to do this miracle by God 's command, but the sorcerers of Egypt are able to replicate the same miracle. And, and I know for you, maybe for me, I, I was thinking, David Blaine showed up. And did some, like, sleight of hand thing. Like, there's a trick here. How, how did they pull this off? There's no way that they actually literally did the same kind of miracle. But there's no explanation for that. There's no cheap trick. So, we have to believe that they did it just as, as Aaron did it with some demonic power at work in the Egyptian magicians. But in the end, Aaron's staff ate up theirs. Yet, we read still, Pharaoh didn't believe. Why? Well, he's like, I can do what you can do. You're not better than I am. But the point is simple. All they could do is replicate. They couldn't create the miracle for themselves. And so my point is this. God, when he created, he creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. He doesn't need anything. He creates. But the enemy takes what God creates, replicates it, twists it, distorts it, and then offers that and says, look at what I can give to you. And the people of the world buy it up. We bought it up and said, yes, this looks really good. And yet, we need to be as Moses eventually did, walking by faith in Hebrews 11. This is what it says, that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Whoa, this is what the world and the enemy has been offering me, and I've been eating it up for a while. I'm giving all that up. And then he says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That biblical perspective, moving off of the forced perspective that the enemy, he can only take what God does and replicate it. Now, eventually, when we get to the plagues, they'll keep replicating things, but eventually, they run out. They can't compete with God because they are powerful but they are posers in the end. There's going to be situations in life that will uh, make things seem opposite from what they really are. But this is why we need to remind ourselves of the truths found in the gospel every single day that God is not small, He is large. God is not out of control, He is very much in control. God is has a plan. He isn't far. He is actually very near to us. He is not disconnected to our lives, but intimately involved in everything going on. He isn't deaf, mute, or blind. He hears, he sees, and he speaks and answers us. He has the power to overcome the world, and he has overcome the world in Jesus. And by his grace through faith in his Son, we can too. So why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion. God, we come before You and we confess in the beginning that, Lord, oftentimes we allow our circumstances to influence our perspective, um, our view of You, our faith, our walk. Um, And so, God, thank You that Your Word encourages us, that Your grace pushes past even our unbelief. Thank You that, You will do all of these things for your people, that you will accomplish salvation, that it is not dependent on anyone. You will do these things, and yet you use people like us in your great plan. God, it's just grace upon grace, wonders upon wonders the things that you do. Your ways are infinitely higher than our ways, and your thoughts infinitely higher than our thoughts. And so God, help us to live and walk out of this place today having a biblical perspective and then walking in light of that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.